Welcome to the Peacebuilding Practitioner, a resource page and podcast for people working on conflict, on peacebuilding and on social justice issues. My name is Bjorn Eser and I'm the founder of and shaker and maker behind the Peacebuilding Practitioner. And today you are listening to the sixth episode of season two of the Peacebuilding Practitioner podcast, Today's episode is all about essential do's and don'ts of conflict-sensitive journalism. So lean back and enjoy another episode with hands-on practical and tested tips for media practitioners, presented and explained by Antonia. Hello fellows, welcome to another episode of our conflict-sensitive journalism podcast. Over the last episodes, we explored fundamental principles that are the foundation of high-quality conflict reporting. The next set of principles provides us with some hands-on tools that help us as journalists to explore, make sense of, and finally represent the true complexity of conflict in our reports, preferably without blowing our readers' minds or our own in the process. I will introduce to you four critical does and don'ts of conflict-sensitive journalism. If you can keep these in mind when working on a story, you can make a big step away from oversimplifying conflicts and instead revealing the true dynamics and pattern behind the visible situation. So let's look at the first of these does and don'ts. Conflict-sensitive journalism principle 5, process-oriented instead of event-based reporting. Let's dive right in. Journalism is driven by actuality. News is literally what is new. This often means, though, that we journalists have a tendency to forget quite quickly what happened yesterday, because those were, well, yesterday's news. As a result, news reporting often focuses on events as if they were happening out of the blue, or as if they were disconnected from other events. This, of course, is not very accurate. All events happen within a larger context and are part of a continuous process. This is especially true when we report on conflicts. Conflicts have history that sits as a rich and often painful backdrop behind everything that is happening right now. Let's get back to an example we used in a previous episode. The report of a bombing. Whenever a bomb explodes somewhere, the media reporting tends to show the same pattern. Journalists describe all the W's and an H, the what, where, when, who and how of the event. The site is described in more or less detail, the number of deaths and injured is counted and immediate reactions of officials are broadcasted. This is what we describe as event-oriented reporting. Event-oriented reporting focuses on the immediate event but mostly ignores the event's context. By ignoring past events that have led to this moment, such reporting only allows events to be explained by the immediate happenings. The fundamental question, why has it happened, is often only explained superficially or remains unanswered. When a violent event isn't fully explained, when the reason why it happened is only explored superficially, this oversimplifies and leads the reader to draw wrong conclusions. In the example of a bombing, the result is that the audience doesn't understand the causes of violence, but is directed against the perpetrators. The report fuels hate, anger 
and is focused on blame. Underlying root causes are mostly ignored. Conflict-sensitive journalism requires reporting to be process-oriented instead of just event-based. Process-oriented reporting means we do not look at a story in a narrow frame. Instead, we include the history of events, the context, circumstances and conditions. For example, a suicide bomber might have been driven into extremist ideologies by dire and desperate living conditions, discrimination and marginalization, the loss of loved ones through security forces, militias, etc. Lacking any prospect or hope for the future, they turn to the only option they see to make an impact – kill themselves for a cause. If we can identify what conditions have driven the perpetrators to commit horrible acts of violence, we present the larger picture – which allows the reader to understand why an event happened. And when conflict parties understand the driving forces behind violence, these forces or root causes can be addressed. This leads us to our next critical principle, principle six, how to report violence. The key here is to understand that where there is direct violence, There's also structural and cultural violence. Event-oriented reporting is especially problematic when an event involves violence. Events involving direct violence can often only be truly explained when we look at the circumstances in which they happen. And these circumstances are usually shaped by two other forms of violence, so-called structural and cultural violence. The concept of direct, structural and cultural violence also goes back to Johann Galtung. His framework, the so-called triangle of violence, explains that violence is not just the direct, physical, destructive act committed from one person or group against another. Johann Galtung looks at violence not just as an act of individuals, but as a social construct. Violence can be embedded in the structures and systems of a society, that is structural violence, or rooted in the cultural myths, values and beliefs of a community, that is cultural violence. I will not go into Galtung's triangle of violence in depth here, but you can listen to the first episode of the Peacebuilding Practitioner podcast, where the concept is explained more thoroughly. Important for journalists is to understand that when there's violence, there are always all three forms of it, direct, cultural and structural violence, because these three cause each other. Structural and cultural violence lead to direct violence and are usually the hidden causes behind atrocities and violent events. Whenever we fail to present structural and cultural violence as a background to direct violent events, such as bombings, the reader fills in the gaps. Lacking relevant explanations why violence happens, the reader will assume the perpetrators were evil, insane, or their ethnicity or religion caused them to act violently. How to report violence is a critical challenge for conflict-sensitive journalism. When it comes to reporting violence, traditional reports most often focus exclusively on direct violence, the visible, physical attack. They identify the perpetrators, stress gory details and provide graphic descriptions. Violence is seen and used as entertainment or emotional shock treatment. Readers react emotionally and with anger against the perpetrators which demonizes the perpetrators and thereby justifies a tough response, for example a military crackdown. 
journalists' reports need to identify and explain structural and cultural violence instead of solely focusing on the direct violence. Only by bringing these to the surface, our readers can gain a deeper understanding of the root causes of violence. For example, poverty, discrimination, marginalization, loss, etc. Understanding these conditions does not serve as justification for violence, but allows the reader to recognize the real problem. And as mentioned earlier, this may lead to the revelation that a tough response often does not make sense because it does not reduce, but rather increase the violence. For example, discrimination is not addressed by declaring martial law. Poverty cannot be reduced by a military crackdown. Exploring what motivates conflict parties and even drives them into violent action is a core task of conflict journalism. And that leads us to our next principle. Principle number seven, exploring interests behind positions. When journalists report about conflicts, a significant amount of the reporting is focused on interviews with leaders and politicians. These interviewees give us their carefully phrased statements designed to support their particular claims and demands and discredit their so-called enemies. War has become the battlefield of PR agencies. Journalists in their reports usually focus on what the parties say what they want. These are the positions of the conflict parties. Positions are often mutually exclusive. Only one party can have the land, the money, and so on, because they're designed to enforce a party's demands. If we focus on mutually exclusive positions, the only way for a party to get what they want is to win. In such a logic, victory or defeat are the only possible outcomes. Since defeat is unacceptable, this leads to increasing competition between parties and an escalation of the conflict. Collaboration is not possible, and the best possible outcome is a settlement based on a compromise, which is, however, still a win-lose outcome. The concept of mutually exclusive ones is stressed by two-party geometry, which we talked about earlier, and builds up the logic of a zero-sum game, in which each gain for one side is automatically considered a loss for the other side. Conflict-sensitive journalism requires us to see beyond these positions and identify what the conflict parties really want, their interests and needs. The desires of stakeholders in a conflict situation are multi-layered, pretty much like an onion. The outer layer represents the positions, the demands parties openly express, packaged, to strengthen and justify their claim. For example, the land is mine, it has to be given back to me because I have the written land title. Behind those positions, however, are interests. Interests describe what the parties really want. For example, a safe, cheap and beautiful place to bring up children and enjoy retirement. Interests are built on the party's needs. Those needs could be safety, income or comfort. Needs are fundamental and drive the party's actions. Interests and needs are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Therefore, all parties can achieve their interests without the other party having to pay, which is described with the term positive sum game. If we as journalists manage to look behind the positions and identify stakeholders' underlying interests and needs, this opens up room for mutual understanding and at some point, hopefully, collaboration. This, however, is very difficult, if not impossible, 
when our reports only focus on elite sources that are highly attuned to political statements, which leads us to our next and last principle in this episode. Principle 8. From an elite-oriented to a people-oriented reporting. Have you ever wondered why so much focus in the news media is given to perceived leaders? Probably not. And neither have most journalists. It is an unquestioned assumption that elites are more newsworthy than Joe or Jane down the road. Elite newsmakers receive primary attention based on their news value of prominence. Elite sources, which are still mostly male, white and middle-aged, are seen as representatives of the people, their mouthpiece, even when they're not elected officials. In the news, normal people receive attention if they become victims or perpetrators or subjects of a human interest story where they gain news value because there's blood, crime, emotions and tragedy. The problem with this journalistic selection is that it disempowers the readers. It suggests that people are generally passive, at the receiving end of history, not where it is made, and therefore have to wait and hope that their leaders will make good decisions for them. This is, of course, not an accurate reflection of reality. The most powerful movements have been started not by elites, but by regular people who had enough of waiting for their leaders to make change happen. And journalists have to recognize this. In conflict-sensitive journalism, news value is seen through the lens of relevance. Elite newsmakers receive attention if their statements have impact on and are therefore relevant to the story, and so do non-elite sources and newsmakers. Reporting does not focus on distinguishing between victims and perpetrators, elites and people, combatants and non-combatants. You may recognize the two-party geometry here. Instead, conflict-sensitive journalism looks at each stakeholder and person individually, humanizing all involved, aiming at understanding their perspective, identifying their interests and needs. Each group is given the chance to speak for themselves. For example, a group of farmers is represented by a farmer and not by the local mayor or a charity worker. This includes men, women and everyone in between, the aged children, yeah, pretty much everyone. Relevant and balanced journalism defines the value of a source or statement solely by the relevance of that respective group, person or opinion for the story. Reporting is geared towards integrating a variety of perspectives. The reporter does not decide to either report elite perspectives or people perspectives, but aims to include both, presented by various stakeholders. This requires us to find sources who truly represent each of the actors, and involves also minority or underprivileged groups and individuals. It might be the most underestimated source which provides the most interesting insight. So let's summarize all this. In this episode, we have explored four more very practical principles of conflict-sensitive journalism. First, principle five. We need to go beyond events-based reporting to a reporting that captures conflict as an ongoing process, in which every event that happens is the result of things that happened in the past and is embedded within the context of the situation. Second, principle six. When reporting on violence, 
we need to ensure that we identify and include the structural and cultural violence behind the direct violence, because they help us understand why direct violence happens. Failing to present the hidden aspects of violence would mean our readers cannot truly understand why direct violence happens and draw their own conclusions. This leads to blame and ultimately more violence. Third, principle seven. To further understand what truly motivates the conflict parties, we need to explore the interests behind their positions. Their claims what the parties want and demand. Positions are justifications and are designed to make agreements hard to reach. Interests, on the other hand, are what the parties truly want, and they are often not as mutually exclusive as the conflict parties believe. Finally, principle eight. Positions are usually peddled by politicians and other elite sources. That is why conflict-sensitive journalism urges journalists to go beyond the usual elite sources we often tend to prioritize because they're seen as authorities. In fact, they often aren't the best sources since they have strong agenda and try to use the media to reach their goals. Reaching out to sources amongst regular people can often add immensely to our understanding of the conflict. Interviewing doctors, NGO workers, traders, taxi drivers or teachers can provide a new angle without the professional spin doctoring we need to circumvent when depending on the so-called leaders for information. All these concepts I described here are developed with insights from researchers, conflict workers and practicing journalists around the globe. People like you and me. They bring together the understanding of conflict that peacebuilding practitioners have gained throughout decades in the field and the equivalent deep knowledge and values frameworks that serve as foundation of journalism. Conflict-sensitive journalism tries to bring both of these worlds together to create a reporting that empowers, enables and nurtures human societies and helps us to overcome the horrors of war and learn to solve conflicts non-violently. I will take a break here and continue this list of critical shifts in journalism reporting in our next episode. Meanwhile, I leave you to relate these concepts to your own experiences working in conflict or in journalism. Think it through, test all I've been talking about against your own observations and then join me again for our next episode. Until then, stay safe and stay sane as always. So much for today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you won't miss out on any of the future episodes. And I would really appreciate if you leave me a rating on iTunes, on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you want to learn more about the Peacebuilding Practitioner, head over to my webpage that's www.thepeacebuildingpractitioner.org where you find plenty of articles from practitioners for practitioners. And if you want to dive even deeper into this field of work, join us for one of our online courses. If you want to learn more about that, just get in contact with me. You'll find the contact details in the show notes or on my webpage. Mm-hmm.